It is February 8th, 2023. DPBC brought to you by the fine folks at TechGC. 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 Yeah. Tech <laughs> hey, my members only jacket, bro. My yeah. TechGC members only jacket is a fucking fascist statement. It's around legit. Time. It's, it's legit. legit as hell, dude. Let's bring them. Let's bring them to GPS and wear them together. Let's rock them. I'm with it. Yep. All right. I'm I'm deal. All right. Peace. <laughs> All right. Here we are. We're here. What's up, man? You got some hey. news? Drop it. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good, man. But who cares? Good. Drop this news, man. I'm excited. Ah, uh, yeah. The, uh, new company, new logo here. Um, two weeks into my job with OpenAP as GC and CPO. It's exciting. Exciting to be here. Yeah, it's been fun. Congrats, man. I was, I'm uh, really excited. I'm really excited for you. It's a big thanks. change here, but welcome back to ad tech. I think it's a cool company <laughs> with a cool proposition, man. So I'm pumped for you. Yeah. Well, you remember uh, several months ago, I called you and said, I think I got to make a change. And you said, okay, cool. And then about an hour later, you're like, there's this company called OpenAP. And uh, our friend Elisa is uh, outside council and maybe you should chat with them. And uh, the yeah, rest is history. Yeah. Here we are, man. So I'm excited. You know, man. Without it's Pedro, just... without Pedro, there's no OpenAP. Well, I think OpenAP exists without Pedro. The company Andy exists. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Look, thank I, you, buddy. I, I, I just think <laughs> I thought it was a good fit, man. Like I, I, I'd, I'd heard some cool stuff about the company. I talked with Elisa about it, and um, I just suspected they were at the right time for hiring a GC. And like, I can't think of anybody better than you to do the job they need someone to do. So, I'm, I'm, I'm happy you're excited about Thanks. it. I think I'm thrilled for them to have you, and like, it's cool to have you a little bit back towards the ad tech side of things, man. Um, it it's is. thrashy, but but we need your we need your brain. It is. It's complicated, and the TV side of ad tech is is something that I dabbled in at the end of my time at DataZoo, who uh, was acquired by Roku. So I have some familiarity with it, but it's been years. It's been a few years, and it's a, a brand new world in kind of the TV TV data side of things. So it's really exciting. I'm back uh, back to learning mode. Back with the company. I was in LA yesterday or last week. Sorry. Um, meeting up with everybody and you know it's fun it's been really fun so far good man well good. since i know you're gonna be going to la more i love la i go yeah not as often as i'd like but enough i need you to scope out all the sushi restaurants for me and get me some wrecks <laughs> because uh, the la sushi seems pretty strong yeah well there's there's a, there's a lot of strong scenes there it's really a fun yeah. fun place <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true there, i was in a restaurant i was in a restaurant with some colleagues and one of them said I feel like everybody here has this air of importance and they said they, they feel like they're important or they really are important. And it's true. Like people just look like they've got something, they've got something going, you know, everybody it's does. It's showbiz town, man. Like there's just, you know, like people are well curated um, in yeah. their uh, public posturing, you know, and I, I get it. It's man. not like that in Boston. <laughs> It is not like, well, that. I come from DC where like, you know, uh, I think people are a little scrappier, but like you, you never know, like you walk into a restaurant, you talk to somebody, turns out they're the fucking ambassador of somewhere, you know, like this is just sort of like LA, I think it's a little different, but, um, there, there's a lot there's of people some of that vibe. There's some of that vibe, Pedro in DC though, where it's sort of the name dropping 
uh, but the name dropping in DC is obviously government related. And yeah, this power, person power. is my friend who's the secretary of blah, blah, blah. And that stuff never resonated with me ever either. It was like, that's cool for them. But, you know, but if somebody walks up to you at a bar that. in LA and says, Hey, this is the guy who does the voice for SpongeBob, you're starstruck. I'm guessing. Right. Right. Cause more I, than, more than DC. <laughs> yeah, definitely. More than dude, DC. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Anyone, <laughs> anyone in, in the SpongeBob orbit is huge. Dude. We need Patrick yeah. Starr to chime in on an omnibus national privacy law. That's my take on things. Yeah. I bet you he'd swear it's away, but we'll see. Right, well, don't hold he's, he's the glue. Patrick is the glue, and we need we need the glue. We need the Somebody glue, man. To, yeah, to get it done. So, yeah. Well, we, we've got uh, a friend of ours on the show, Andrew Woods, the GC of uh, Pubmatic, previously at Twitter and Turn. And, um, and man... He's made the rounds uh, in ad his, tech. Love though. his point of view. Love his point of view on yeah, stuff. He's made the rounds in ad tech and like he knows he knows his stuff. And I think like, you know, I tend to be like more philosophical than like technical oriented a lot on the podcast. And I think he's pretty philosophical about like why he, he works in our area. And uh, I really appreciate it. it resonates with me because that's sort of how I think about things. But uh, yeah, man, I, I, I'm happy he is where he is. OK, here we are. Hey, we're here. Yep, we're here. We're here with our buddy Andrew Woods. Uh, this is one I've wanted to get going for a while, so I'm glad we did it. Um, thanks for coming. Andrew, hey, why for are you plural? Why, why are you plural? Why aren't you just wood? <laughs> yeah, this is an this is an interesting question because I've always wondered this myself. Most of my life, I have run into people wanting me to be Andrew Wood, yeah. but I've always been Andrew Woods. And when I got to law school. You know, you get to law school and they assign you an email address and your email address when I was in law school was A. Woods, except for there's another Andrew Woods. There's a guy one year ahead of me in law school and this guy was already A. Woods and he's Andrew mm. Keen Woods and I'm Andrew Michael Woods. So I spent all of life school being A.M. Woods and this poor guy had me kiting on his reputation, ruining <laughs> his day. He's like a gorgeous, great looking guy, super smart. He's a professor. And like he had to deal with me trashing his reputation. Like <laughs> everyone being like, hey, you're Andrew Woods? I didn't realize you were so good looking. And he's like, you're thinking of the other Andrew Woods. And this guy was getting my emails for two years. I feel terrible. What I'm getting from this is you're the ugly, unsuccessful. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, Andrew Woods. Okay, yeah, that is good. exactly right. And like straight out of law school, like I sort of worked in like a, a, a sort of an odd area, but like was focused on working on a big toxic tort sort of human rights case down in Ecuador for a couple of years. And he happened to be working on human rights issues. And he was like writing prestigious papers. And I was running around trying to help advance this lawsuit and just I think he spent like five years just constantly getting asked questions about my acting. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, man. Well, well uh, in, in, I'll, I'll give you some Pedro Pavone news. Like, there's my name is not as common uh, as uh, in, in the United States. However, in Florida, it's not completely uncommon. And if you type mm -hmm. my name into Google and you write the word Florida, you get an older man who is a convicted murderer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that so is, uh, Google, I'm from Florida. So if you Google my name in Florida, like you get all these Google results about a capital criminal, right? And I'm like, okay. That's dynamite. Well, it's not my the favorite. Other, the other Andy Dale is runs a karate studio. I forget what, what, <laughs> I forget what state he's in, but it very much reminds me of the guy from Napoleon Dynamite. Yes. <laughs> 
I'm gonna he doesn't look you. like that guy. He doesn't. It's not him. But you know, I'm gonna send you a pair of those American flag pants. For you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I love those. Yeah, that's a that's a great. The other, I thought you were gonna say the other Andrew Woods is the GC of Magnite. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that is not the other Andrew Woods. Uh, Aaron's a, a great guy. Yeah, no, I, uh, that's true. Uh, well, so I'm curious about one thing. So I obviously, Andrew, I know how you and I met. How did you did? I think I believe you and Pedro maybe met the same way you and I met. Is that true? Through negotiating? No, I don't. I don't think we've ever been on the other side of a deal, have we? I don't think so. I, don't oh, I think thought so. you did. I thought you did at Twitter and Oracle. Okay. Maybe it's possible I, there was an email string or some shit, but I don't think so. I don't think so. You know who yeah, you're thinking about? Lot. You're thinking about Scott. Is it Scott Wood? What was his name? Never mind. <laughs> you know, you you no, you're I, don't in this so. I don't think enough. so. You run across, uh, you, you end up across the table from a bunch of different people. Um, well, Pedro, George- here's here's what happened with me and Andrew Woods. <laughs> um, I was at Data Zoo. Twitter, we were doing some deal with Twitter. We're negotiating the deal. And we get to the, you know, this is, you know, seven, eight years ago at this point. And we get to the sensitive part of the deal, which is the data. And I'm over here at a DSP. And I'm like, look, I I, I have to use some of the data that comes back after the ad campaign in order to optimize and, you know, make our, our performance better for the next go round. And he's like, I was at turn. I, I get it. <laughs> and so it just made the negotiation so easy. He was like, I know what you need. Here's the language. Let, let's get through it. And we did. And then we realized we had a bunch of mutual friends as well. So that's interesting. I love that. The guy I yeah. used to work with a lot on Twitter was Scott Moorhead. That's what it was. I don't know yeah. where he is now, but he was my, he was my, I don't know, counterpart, I guess, at Twitter. Great guy, by the way. Great guy, yeah. Scott, Scott's, Scott's lovely. He he has moved around a little bit the last couple of years since he left Twitter. He's doing wonderfully for himself. Uh, he was over at Stripe. Nice. Happy to hear it. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. Yeah. So before we get to Twitter, obviously Andrew was at Twitter. We mentioned that just now. Um, so, gr- like, just go back quickly. Growing up, do you want to be a lawyer? Did you dream of that, or did that come later? A lot of yeah, dreams, I man. Up- I had a, uh, yes, you know, so when I was a little boy and uh, growing up in Fresno, California, (laughs) right in the middle of the state, an agricultural region, and the other kids were out in the backyard uh, pretending to hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth in the World Series, I was upstairs in my room pretending to redline a contract (laughs) and turn a data subject access request. So everything's (laughs) worked out. Just like you sound like a lame kid, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, um, so I, I wanted to be a poker player. So I started my career, uh, so to speak, as it were, uh, in college and in high school, I started playing cards. So I spent seven or eight years before I went to law school, uh, bouncing around the, the poker world, trying to make my money that way. And so what, what's your uh, title? Is it poker player or is it like hustler? Like, what do you call yourself? <laughs> yeah, that, that was always a question. Um, I, you know, my dad was a lawyer. And so I was privileged to grow up in sort of an environment where a legal career was like a possibility and was like always sort of present in my life. And I had a a pretty clear understanding of what it meant to be an attorney. And so like that was a path that was out there. But I really thought like, you know, at the time I got deep into poker and then there was like this wave of poker in the early aughts that caught me when I was like four or five years into my 
sort of situation. And there was like this tide. And I thought like, well, I'm going to ride this wave. And like, I'm going to be a professional poker player. And whether you call yourself a hustler or a rounder, whether you're out there playing poker or like, as my dad said, you need to keep a second job because no one will ever hire you if they find out that you played poker. Uh, <laughs> this is just a generational divide, I think, at the time. And uh, going through that process uh, was a kick, but was like, ultimately not a sustainable career as a, it turns out like, I'm a mediocre poker player and there's a lot of people a lot better than me at it. So uh, what, what makes someone really good versus mediocre at that level? Yeah. So, I mean, the level I was playing at and, and keeping in mind that like the poker world changed a lot, as you saw a lot of sort of like quantitative players move in and players started moving online and playing in volume. I was still back in the day where you were playing in like around a physical table. Um, and I was playing like cash games and there's like a lot of variants of poker and all this sort of stuff. But putting that aside, uh, I always found that like sort of successful poker players fell into two very broad categories. And one is people who are intuitively good at the game. And oftentimes those are people who may not even know precisely why they're good at it. And if I were to categorize it, I would say that these are people for whom like understand game theory sort of intuitively or are hyper perceptive and like they get, you know, they follow their guts and like they know when to be aggressive, when not to be that sort of stuff. And they are successful. And then like, you know, they're able to sort of grow out of that. You run into a lot of people who fall into sort of the degenerate gambler category in this world. They like stumbled into a poker room between like a craps table and a roulette table and found out they're just good at poker for some reason. And like they make a million bucks at poker and go lose it all at the craps table. And then the second category is like the quants. And these are folks whom study deeply and like they work deeply at the game. They're doing things like calculating, uh, you know, they're doing very sophisticated math as they work through the bets, what the proper betting strategy is, what optimal sort of applications are. And that's sort of the way the poker world has moved in the last 15 years or so. I haven't played serious poker since maybe 2006, 2007. So I'm like well out of that game. But like when you saw it and it's not dissimilar to what you see like in our business now or anything. There are some people who just kind of like can see the law and they grok it and like they're, they understand like sort of the privacy stuff intuitively. And then there are people who get great at it by focusing really on it, thinking about it deeply, working on it, following thought leaders and like trying to approach uh, mm. all the different aspects that make you great at this thing. So you must take a lot from your poker time to your GC job, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you like, know. There's like the the cool, like sexy part of the poker thing where like, you know, you're calling bluffs and you're trying to think about learning a lot. And then a lot of it was not dissimilar to being like a young associate at a firm and you're grinding like a hundred hours a week. You're just at a green felt table instead of a, uh, instead of doing doc review, you know, and like, you're just like trying to pick up two big blinds an hour if you're trying to pay your rent doing this thing. And so um, there was a lot of that. But I think the thing that has stayed with me the most was trying to uh, one Think about things from the other person's point of view, trying to constantly think about every situation from like, what does this look like to them? What is the problem they're trying to solve? At a poker table, you're in a defined ecosystem. The problem they're trying to solve is relatively straightforward, right? They're trying to take your money. Like, but that those same lessons apply to everything else. And like trying to think about what do I look like to them? What story am I telling them with what the actions I take? How am I building up credibility with them? How am I not building up credibility? Like, how am I telling sort of my story about what I am and who I am uh, to them is, is I think, super useful and a lesson that has 
like sort of pulled forward into every other aspect of my life. And the second thing that has come through on it is like, as attorneys go, I'm pretty risk tolerant. I'm like fairly comfortable uh, making like high expected value bets, even where, uh, you know, there's the possible downside, like big numbers don't scare me. Like being like at risk isn't something I'm comfortable with. As long as I feel like our process is good, as long as I feel like we are making a positive expected value decision and like, we're all sort of comfortable with where we're at. That's a big one that, um, seeing things from other people's perspectives is huge across in-house lawyering, but also, um, internal work just with other people in your, in your business, your board members, like everybody has a point of view based on some things that are, you know, if you're, if you're using the poker analogy, the cards that are on the table that everybody can see in common and then what's in everyone's head and and what they're, they're trying to figure out for the, for them. So like, does that, has that gotten maybe starting with you, Pedro too, like, has that gotten like harder for you over the years or easier? Has what gotten harder? Uh, like the way you have to look at people's motivations and their decisions as you think about making legal decisions or making business decisions or uh, participating in those kind of exercises where you have to sort of go through a logic game in your head about what people's motivations are and whose constituents you know care about what. And then you're driving to a point of view or an answer on something. Has that gotten easier or harder over time? That's a good question. I I think it's getting easier to spot issues that aren't necessarily in the black text of or in the like that that they're subtext. Like it's much easier to spot subtext as you get more experience. I'll give you an example, a real world example from this week at work. Um, some regulatory language is floating around in a prominent jurisdiction. Um, it's more like it's more like. Um, uh, what's the word I would use? It's not actually legal or regulatory, but it's more like dicta language is floating around. And um, on its face, it looks fairly innocuous. So I sent it over to OC. I sent it to some of our internal analysts and said, what do you think about this? And the internal analysts came back and said, we don't think it's that risky. The language on its face doesn't suggest, you know, X, Y, Z, we should be fine. OC was a little bit more cautious. I said, I know the guy who wrote these things. I know what's in his head and he's foreshadowing for the X, Y, Z that I'm worried about, whether it says it in the text or not, that's what's happening. I couldn't do that 10 years ago at all because I didn't know the guy. But more importantly, I didn't have the like experience of like reading. I didn't have enough experience to be able to effectively read tea leaves. This is something that I've gotten much better at. Am I perfect? No, obviously. Um, but I do see the value of this because only I with because I've done the things I've done can give that context. Um, and if you're right about it, 80, 85% of the time, you're very valuable. Now, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but like if you've got people who have an insight into why the why of things, that is really helpful. And so developing that insight on my own has been something I've focused on quite a bit in the last couple of years because everybody's smart. Chat GPT can spit out all sorts of shit now and so can a bunch of other tools. So what's my value add? Well, my value add is that I know the people who do the things and I know what they care about whether they're writing it or not. And so I can see the foreshadowing they're doing when they're doing it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's totally right. Right. Like knowing the personality behind it and trying to just 
think through sort of what is this person trying to accomplish is is just unbelievably valuable. I think that oftentimes in our jobs, you know, you work in house, you're a service provider who's trying to help meet a goal, right? You get a request in from a partner, you're trying to drive towards it. And there's a lot of pressure to sort of deliver the thing and like to do it quickly, to advance the business, to advance like whatever anyone's OKRs are or whatever it is they're running against. But sometimes it's like about trying to think about what is the actual question they're asking you, not the assignment they've given you. I was talking with one of my folks the other day about uh, a project where one of our leads had come in and said, hey, I need this like short form contract. And it, you know, the concerns were raised, this could potentially expose us to risk. Like, what about these different things that we're defraying? And the conversation that we had internally was like, what is the problem they're really talking about here? Like when they say they want a short form contract, what are they trying to solve? How can we sort of get into this? Like how, like when, if we serve up this thing to them and they take it out to market and show it to a client, what's the partner going to say when they look at it? What's the motivation of the deal maker, the attorney on the other side of this thing? What's the impact of this going to be? And sort of take stepping back and trying to think this through from like, what is the other person actually asking for here? What is like the problem they need solved? How can we help meet that? I think has been, uh, something that's been pretty valuable as we've sort of approached trying things go. Why doesn't law school prepare us for that? I don't think law school I don't think law school is the vessel for that. That's my take on that. Like Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. I don't think so. Efficiency is the enemy of profits, right? Like I mean it's for an associate. Well, in a it law is, firm, I suppose. Is the enemy of profits. <laughs> I would argue everywhere yeah. else in the fucking world, it's not. <laughs> and this is why I'm not a yeah. huge fan of the law firm model, right? But I, but I'm oh. gonna but I'll give you a real world example, right? Like um, yesterday, I was talking to one of my outside counsel about a corporate matter, and we had I've been on a call with some of my new colleagues at my job second week, uh, and then I called him after to give him some color commentary from from past conversations. And I said to him, what we're really trying to do here is X that builds toward a much bigger strategic outcome. And he just goes, oh, thank you. Like, that's a huge piece of information that isn't that. that, And now I totally get what you're after. And now what you've asked me to do is a lot more crystallized and clear for me. And so I think like, yeah, outside counsel isn't isn't uh, always uh, lauded for this stuff. But when you give them the nuggets, then immediately they know what to do with them. And I do think you're right. Law school doesn't teach us how to do that. But I do think they appreciate efficiency. And I do think they appreciate, like, how do I get the best answer to you? Because they want to make the best, do the best job. But that's well, look, I think that's though, the difference. Though, like, sorry, like I, I don't think that's an efficiency analysis of like, how do I get the best answer to you? Oh, I... Or what is the best answer? That's like a quality analysis. Efficiency can be a part of quality if you demand it. But I agree with uh, Andrew, like in the law firm, being fast is not incentivized. Now, I could make the argument that I'd rather my outside counsel be uh, right than fast, right? Um, and I think that there are some really valid reasons for that, especially since usually when you call outside counsel, the stakes are pretty high. That's why you're willing to pay. Um, but I, I don't think in law school or even as an associate, you're really like, I don't think there's a lot of investment in teaching 
speed as a component of the quality legal advice process. I, I just don't think so. I mean, the pithy way that I've always phrased it is like when you're at a law firm, you are paid to not be wrong. And That's right. When you're in house, you're paid to be right. And those two things are slightly different, right? Is that like when uh, if you had an associate who was like, hey, I'm a first year associate who you asked a research question to and they just were like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure the answer is this. I don't think that any responsible partner would say, great, OK, we'll just go with that. I think they would say, go check. Where I think we all know that when you're working in-house and you don't have the luxury of time, you're not paid by the hour. And there are a lot of questions where they will be like, hey, an 85, 90% certainty is good enough. Let's not spend a week boiling the ocean to ensure that it's right, unless it's a high enough risk issue or a, big, a, large, enough, uh, a large enough issue to, to, to spend that time. Maybe it's crazy, but I... I believe my outside counsel should be right and fast. And well, I, you know, look, not not on every issue, right? Like, I, but I also, you don't have weeks to spare. Like, I, I I totally agree with you guys. Like, they need to be right. I get, I get it, especially if it's a huge issue. But if we need something moving fast, especially when there's time kills deals in the corporate side of things, like if you're moving slowly. It's a huge problem. Inefficiency is a big problem. Yeah, that's fair. And I don't, I don't want, I want to be clear. I don't mean to suggest that our outside counsel is slow or anything. Our outside counsel is very fast. I just mean that it's not a question where, uh, oftentimes, I am expecting from my outside counsel for them to give me an eighty percent solution. They might throw forty-five associates at a thing to figure it out in a day. Uh, and we've had lots of times where we've spun up OC and they like sprint and give us great advice very quickly uh it just always reminds me of the old like real estate question of like you can choose like price location and quality pick two of three <laughs> and, no, like, but, you but, and by the way like i want to be really precise i don't mean law firms are slow i mean associates don't have an incentive to be fast associates have an incentive to build and so the way law firms accelerate is by number of associates, not by increasing the speed of associates. So if I call yeah. a law firm right now and go, I need an answer in five minutes, I don't think they're going to put one associate on it. They're going to put 50 associates on it. <laughs> That's how they get fast. And then it costs me a billion dollars. Like, again, it, it, it sounds like it's like it's a super critical thing about firms, but I actually think it's like. I would much rather have three junior associates looking at something to spit out a 95% accurate answer than one associate working really fast scrambling and give me something at a 45% accuracy rate. Now, there's a partner in there whose job it is to validate that and who's really expensive. And so I think part of why like, you get more associates, excuse me, like you add associates when you need to increase speed and quality and at the same time is to not have the partner be the one who does the work and cost me a fortune and to make sure that like the associates are sort of like working together to spit out the best thing because they're going to have different strengths and weaknesses. What, but they're all going to have one weakness is, which is alone. They're slow. When I was an associate alone, I was slow because I didn't know shit. I didn't know where to look for things. I didn't have, I didn't have experience. <laughs> and, like I, I didn't know shit. Like I, this is a, like, and that's the nature of being an associate that it doesn't make you dumb. It just makes you inexperienced. Like that, that's all it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, we had an issue recently where I needed, we had like a a, a very important uh, potential thing. I needed a excellent answer overnight. 
and like our primary outside counsel sprinted they assembled like the the avengers and like they executed a brilliant answer great advice overnight and when i joined the call the next morning i thought i'd stumbled into a firm retreat like the number of people who were on this call had to do. Was, it's like i had but they gave me a great answer 12 hours after i picked up the phone and called them i know that uh i knew that all these like 26 year olds i was talking to hadn't slept and i appreciated their answer and it was right and uh, you know, it, this page of notes, it was expensive, but it was good and not, not a bad thing. Right. That's like, so, and, that, and, and by the way, that is a beautiful service that law firms provide because sometimes mm-hmm. we don't want to set, like, I don't think you did that on purpose, Andrew. Like, I'm, you know, we're not setting oh. booby traps for our outside counsel, but like, that's the thing. If I get a call on Friday at 5 PM from, you know, the overlords and they're like, Hey man, I need an answer on this on Monday. Like I'm going to be too slow. And I've been at this a hundred years, right? I got to call, you know, Alisa, Alyssa or whoever and be like, hey, assemble the Avengers. We got we got 48 hours yeah. to give a really big answer on a really expensive issue. And like it costs me less to pay you uh, more than I want to to get to a good answer than if I get the wrong answer to the business. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, for some reason, Pedro, the imagery that came to mind when you first said they gather 50 associates and they run at the thing <laughs> was like, that like uh, I've been watching Drive to Survive, and so that's why this came to mind, which is like the the track at Monte Carlo with all of them going a million miles an hour and then just wrecking into each <laughs> other. But hopefully they don't wreck. Hopefully they you know they they but figure you know it out. The better I, Formula One analogy <laughs> is like if you look at the pit teams, the pit crews, right? There's those are some of the best mechanics on earth. They probably are the best mechanics on earth, right? But you can't just have one there. You need ten because the pit stop has to last two seconds. Not if yeah. it lasts two and a half seconds, you're fucked. And so it's sort of the same thing. Like our outside counsel is that. our pit crew and they're really expensive that. and they're really good at what they do. And we need them to be two seconds or or less or we're going to lose the race. The totally. pit crew is a great analogy. Totally. Um, all right. Well, go, Andrew, go back to, to one one thing in your career when you were kind of the solo founder uh, of, a, of a company. Will you talk through that? you know, time in your life and that decision, because it's interesting. And then it led you to turn and Twitter and from there. Yeah, my uh, my legal career was esoteric in that when I came out of law school, uh, I wanted to be a gaming lawyer. I wanted to work on poker stuff, going back to sort of my background in the poker world. And uh, so I took a job with a very small law firm. I was originally going to join uh, a big uh, national firm and changed my mind sort of the last second to go work for this uh, small law firm that was working directly for a couple of founders of gaming companies, uh, working on international, uh, what we called transnational litigations around poker stuff. So basically looking at lots of different jurisdictions, trying to navigate varying in different jurisdictions, different local rules as applied to online gaming, having to deal with lots of different regulators in lots of different places, having to deal with inconsistent legal regimes as this thing that was not well understood by the regulators and was like an emerging technology was they attempted to regulate it. You had a bunch of different types of environments you were operating stop me if this sounds familiar but like dealing with this gaming stuff ended up being a nice primer for what privacy was going to be like later in life but so i spent a couple of years working on that and then uh it came time for my wife and i to move back to california i left that firm and i was sort of uh 
betwixt and between because I had been sort of a pseudo litigator for a while. And now I was wanting to transition to being in house. And at the time I had, uh, I met two other gentlemen who were the co-founders of a company called Skill and Games that I joined uh, as their third founder. And we were building a big data analytics company. So again, forgive me if this sounds familiar, but there are a lot of parallels here to ad tech. This was a company looking at the online gaming data that flows off of the hand histories that happen in an online poker world. So looking at the raw data and trying to find ways to optimize yield, trying to find ways to help people lose money slower if they are going to lose money, help people make money slower because poker is essentially like a zero sum game, right? You know, somebody loses money, somebody makes money, you're not playing against the house. And so from the casino's point of view, from the online gaming operator, they're trying to make the game as fun as possible because it's a volume game for them. They take a small tax per hand. So the business was built around that. And when I joined there, it was my first entry to being on the business or in-house operating side of the world. So it was a total learning experience in terms of all three of us were first time founders. We didn't have any experience and like we were trying to build this company. The technical co-founders did an excellent job at sort of building a product that worked. I did a less excellent job in trying to build sort of the legal business function of it. And eventually like it didn't work out a year and a half later, which is like a classic example of a combination of being naive, being inexperienced, hubris, whatever you want to call it. And like my failure to execute but led me to building sort of the basis of an understanding of sort of big data, how data flows work, how you think about treating data, uh, starting to think about sort of what user data looks like, what deals look like. And coming out of that, I was in a place where I had just enough experience to start being dangerous. And that led me to a role at Turn, which uh, is, you know, eventually was acquired by Singtel and Amobi and was a demand side platform. And I joined Turn back in 2013 to work on the demand side of the ad tech world, where uh, I started to learn about like what ad tech was. And I started to think more deeply about sort of privacy and how you think about operating inside of a company, the commercial side of the world, the product counseling side of the world, a whole bunch of things that were you know, essentially like my introduction to all of this. And uh, I did some time at Turn under Max Ochoa, who trained me up a little bit about how to operate an in-house company. And then a couple of years later in 2015, Twitter came calling. Uh, and I was part of the sort of spurt of like the second big spurt of Twitter legal's hires right after their IPO, when they had raised the IPO money and they were starting to sort of build out the team and expand it. So joining the team when uh, the company was still fairly small and then spent a bunch of time there. Were you at Twitter Turn when cool. they had? I, like, I, I want to ask the Twitter. Oh, sorry, question. one sec, Paige. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Go ahead. I mean, okay, go ahead. Go. Just let's definitely ask that. It was just curious. Were you at Turn during the FTC thing? The zombie cookies. Turn, yeah, that Turn yeah. had. Fine, the finest cookie-related name and all right. of that. Right. Um, I, that was at the la- my last like two or three months at Turn. Okay, I thought so. I worked the. Uh, the beginning stages of that before I transitioned out. Got it. Okay. Cause that, that would, that's, that was a hard thing for a company that size to handle. And, um, I would imagine it was hard for them, but, um, maybe you're happy you missed it. <laughs> it was a hard thing, you know, and it was actually, it was a great introduction to where sometimes the blind spots are when you're counseling, doing product counseling around a company, because at the time, 
some of these sort of like the mechanisms for cookie sinks and for like what they were doing as they were trying to honor the privacy opt-outs and trying to short, like essentially shortcut like an ID syncing handshake, how the mechanisms can create regulatory problems can, you know, can violate sort of users' expectations and how you have to pay close attention to the sheer mechanics sometimes, even if conceptually, like when, you know, as an internal lawyer, you look at a thing, you may get a PRD or something and you're like, yeah, theoretically, this looks fine or more or less consistent. Then you find out later that you didn't pay close enough attention as an attorney to like the actual implementation specs and like the mechanism that the engineer chose to use doesn't track through uh, to sort of either what a user expectation would be or how we've described things in our policies. I'm that not must saying have, that. Yeah, must have been informative going to Twitter then uh, as well. So uh, yeah, I mean, product counseling, commercial, those are such overlapping functions. Yeah, well, Twitter was a kick, you know, it was a, I spent seven and a half years there. And that's where I learned how to operate sort of within a larger tech company. Twitter, when I joined, was about 2,500 people, grew about 8,000. Uh, it's back to 2,500 or less now, but uh, was there through a roller coaster of revolving executives, changes in product guides. They did everything from they had Vine to shutting down, narrowing the scope of the business then expanding the scope of the business, going through subscription businesses. There was a wild number of things that occurred, ultimately culminating, of course, in Elon's takeover, though I left the company about two months before uh, that happened. All right. Sorry, Pedro, I interrupted you before, but you wanted to, you wanted to ask perfect. a little bit about what, So what do you think yeah. about what's happened with the company since you left? Like, what are your reactions to it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's super interesting, right? I mean, you're getting, we're getting to see Twitter has always uh, occupied sort of an outsized place in the public consciousness compared to its size. I know this is something I think Andy and I have talked about before, but like you all oftentimes hear people say things like, you know, or you'll hear regulators or Congress say, I want Twitter, Facebook, and Google in here testifying. And you're like, well, one of those is not like the others. One's a 4,000 person company, a 5,000 person company with, you know, 300 million users. And the other two number their daily actives in the billions and, you know, have many more employees and things like that. But Twitter has always punched above its weight and it's always been occupied this space in part because of, you know, media people who use it and stuff. And so we get a lot more visibility into what's going on in that company than you would get at a lot of other places. So watching, uh, even, as a former employee, watching Elon sort of take over the way he has changed that company, the impact it's had on their revenues is just insight you wouldn't get at a normal like company that's been taken private. And so it's been really fascinating to see his like uh, unorthodox management style, to put it politely, and the impact it has had. It's also very sad, right? Like the, my experience at Twitter was that for whatever faults it is and whatever criticisms you may have, it was always a company of like people who I thought were really good people trying really hard to do the right thing. And, you know, people could disagree with what those people's concepts of the right thing were or weren't, but I never sat in a room ever uh, and had anyone say something like, I don't care if this hurts somebody, it makes us money. Let's do it. Right. I, I I've sat in rooms and watched people turn off, uh, material amounts of money because it was just philosophically the wrong thing to do and do it without even having a hard conversation about it. And so I was always very proud to work at the company and watching the company be taken in such a jarring, uh, different direction, independent of 
whether you agree with the direction or not, was just sad for all of the effort that a lot of people had put into it. And then watching, of course, you know, 80, 90% of your colleagues and friends lose their jobs or be forced out of their jobs or guided out of their jobs is always uh, challenging on a personal level. Yeah, what do you think about a... this? Uh, I forget what the, I forget what the subscription is called. The, uh, the blue badge, Twitter, blue, um, Twitter, blue. I was going to say blue bird and I knew that was wrong. Um, Twitter blue, like I, I read an article yesterday, I think like Vanity Fair or something where there's yeah. like 260,000 people worldwide plus or minus have are paying for it. Um, like you were there, like I, from a, that was, uh, I, I was the, the, the lead like commercial revenue product person who launched that product. So, uh, so did it tell with, me about that launch. Like, obviously it's, it, it was a noisy yeah. launch, but like. 260,000 subscribers a couple months later like does that sound like a win does it sound like could do better like just what's sort of your take on how that is that actual product forget twitter and all the contraries like is the product working or would you consider it a successful launch or not i guess is the question so it's a really different product now than it was when i was when i was there we were still a publicly traded company and user growth was the primary thing so twitter blue was about trying to find features almost like a freemium model where you would where you could add value that people would want to pay in addition to using the platform in a way that would not detract from sort of the user growth so the challenge that the product people were always in is like if you create something for Twitter blue that is like has product market fit and is going gangbusters, we should make that free to people because the overall like goal of the platform was to reach more users, period, and to get more users onboarded onto the platform. And so I think one of the challenges that you would always have uh, on the product side is what are the features that you offer? And if they are like are really successful, then you would want to migrate them on to the free platform as a general thought exercise, because the primary goal was to drive user numbers, which would in turn ultimately drive the revenue of the engine. So I think like it was hard, it was like a hard nut to crack on the business side. On the legal side for Twitter, it was like sort of a fundamental shift in what you were talking about. Cause now you're talking about moving from just a standard toss privacy notice type framework where you're offering your service for free and all of the things that follow that. So like now you're entering into a business relationship with a subset of your customers. And so trying to think through what did that look like? What does it look like for the company to build out the ability, you know, process payments to like, you know, what are the integrations? What are the partnerships you do? What are the legal terms look like? You had to think through all that stuff. How does your relationship with the consumers change? What is the, what is the privacy stance? What's the basis for processing the data when suddenly you're now like in a commercial agreement with them versus, uh, I mean, or at least a directly economic agreement versus, you know, a, uh, a free model. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a, it was a kick. It was, it was, a, it was super cool to have an opportunity to work on that. And it's just like a different sort of framework than like what I had done in the ad tech world or what we're doing now at Pometic. So yeah, so what took you, me, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Pedro. Go ahead. No, yeah, I was going to say, one thing that fascinates me about Twitter is like all the controversy over the last five or six months, sort of like all these like new products to market that were released and pulled and changed and modified, all this thrash at Twitter, yet the platform is pretty resilient, man. Like, um, I am not as active on Twitter as I used to be, and that's my own choice. But like, um, I can observe that the platform is still the place where news is made, like by newsmakers. It's so interesting to me how resilient Twitter itself is, and that just speaks to the like the quality of the product. Like people just 
use it. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a really cool place to work, right? It was a cool. It was. I remember when I joined. One of the reasons why I initially was interested in going there is because I remember during the Iranian Green Revolution, I remember reading this little snippet, like a Reuters article or something, that always kind of stuck in my brain. And it was a, a throwaway line that basically said during the Iranian Green Revolution, people were using Twitter to like protesters were using Twitter to communicate with each other, and Twitter servers were scheduled to go down for maintenance. Uh, from like 1 a.m. Pacific to 3 a.m. Pacific. But that would have been in the middle of the day in Iran. And the State Department, the U.S. State Department, asked Twitter to delay their maintenance to leave the servers up. And it always stuck in my head as like, it's a pretty cool thing to like work at a company if the U.S. government, if the State Department is saying, hey, your service is so important to like an active thing that is happening in Iran that like, can you please make sure the service stays up for like, a couple more hours, a couple more days, because yeah, that's pretty people cool, are. Man. That's awesome. So that, was, that was sort of like the impetus behind. It's, it's a throwaway thing, but it was like an impetus behind me wanting to go work there, and was part of what I enjoyed about working there when I was there. And one other thing that stood out to me always about Twitter is the culture that was created there. You know, and um, on several different occasions, I called Andrew saying like, "Hey, you know, maybe I should come work there." And we we talked about it a bunch of times. And actually, I I flew out, and and there was a particular privacy job, and I was out there, and we were having lunch, and we we're so. Every person I met to a person personified what you were talking about. This like one team of people marching in a you know, say what you want about whatever pieces about Twitter that you may feel or, or feel, but like the team is united on honestly working towards, you know, really like truly benevolent goals in my opinion. And like we were there and we're going to lunch and we <laughs> we're, we're getting lunch and there's a guy there with a bunch of cookies and he hands me a cookie and he says, here, take a cookie, you know? And, and, and then Andrew is like, he introduces me to him and we say hi and then we keep walking and Andrew goes, that's the CFO of Twitter. He likes to bake cookies and give them to people. That's the type of culture that is not everywhere, right? <laughs> not at all. It, it was it was cool. Look, and some people would argue that's the reason why the company ultimately was susceptible to a takeover bid is that the company was focused more on trying to do the quote unquote right thing. And again... I understand a lot of people don't agree like that what Twitter was doing was the right thing and not focused enough on trying to make sure that it was maximizing revenues. And as a result, you know, the stock price was vulnerable enough that the world's richest guy at the time was able to come by and pick it up for. Yeah, you can spin. You can spin that the CFO shouldn't have been making a cookie and sharing it with people. But I think that's bullshit, to be honest. Like, I think that's a cop out. It's a cop out. Like, it, it truly is. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I had a great experience there. It was uh, super educational, super interesting, and an opportunity to work on a ton of different issues. So that was all. You, very- uh, yeah, t- tell us about what's up at Pubmatic. You're the GC of Pubmatic now, a public ad tech company, um, does tr- <clears throat> like historically sell side, but other things as well. Um, what What's up at Pubmatic for you and, and what's up in the future? Yeah, so I mean, I, I joined Pubmatic back in August. Um, Primarily because I was super excited about where ad tech is. And I know that seems a little bit counterintuitive to maybe some of the people who might be listening to this or whatever, uh, because on the tail end of ATT and some of the other shifts and general sort of the regulatory uh, changes in the environment that some of the ad tech knife fight that goes on 
has gotten more intense. They, you know, you saw Critio list itself for sale reportedly uh, yesterday. And Reuters, you're seeing some consolidation in the space. But I think that that's being driven by this moment in time, because my personal belief is that ad tech is right now going through the biggest shift in the way that advertising is bought and sold, uh, certainly since header bidding was introduced and maybe since RTB became a thing back in like 06, 07, 08 period. And that's because we're seeing sort of the social contract shift, right? We're seeing the change in what people uh, like expect what users expect, what the folks who are on websites are thinking about, what they care about, what regulators care about. And then you're seeing the world respond in certain ways, whether it's like the regulatory shifts at sort of the, I guess, state level in the United States, potentially the national level, whether it's the shifts in the GDPR, or you're seeing like the platform shifts, you know, Google's potential deprecation of the third party cookie, uh, already blocking of cookies in other worlds, ATT, and the essentially the deprecation of the technical currency that you see shifted here in terms of like identity and how this works. And to me, this creates the most interesting opportunity that we've seen in our time to think about how we're going to redefine this. Because, you know, people ask me a lot, like, what is changing? What's going to change? And I always say the same answer, which is, I don't know. Like, there are a lot of different proposals on the board. There's a lot of different things that could shift if there's a national privacy law that's entered into the United States, the technical changes that may happen. But I think a lot about what isn't going to change. Like, what is going to stay true? And that is that businesses need to find customers. Publishers need to be able to support their work. Content creators need to get paid. And going to a world where you're like, hey, everyone should just pay subscriptions for everything is a hugely privileged point of view, right? It stands from the point of like, hey, you know, how hard is it to pay two bucks a month for this website or $5 or to play this game and purchase this thing or whatever? And it deprives a huge portion of the world and particularly disadvantaged communities and things like this of access where you know, Twitter blues $8 a month to go back to what we were talking about, which may not be a, a huge deal if you live in the United States and or a developed country and you're making, you know, 50 grand, 60 grand a year, or 100 grand a year. I don't know. Like maybe you can afford that. Maybe you can't. But if there's big chunks of the world where even having internet access is not clear and being able to access content for $8 a month is like an unimaginable expense for a single website, much less if you try and fortify the entire and divide the entire internet into a series of content fortresses where people have to subscribe and pay. So I happen to believe in advertising, which might seem counterintuitive to some people, but like, I think it's like both the most efficient mechanism I've ever seen for monetizing content and supporting content and making content accessible to people. And I happen to think it's a like the most effective way if what you care about is like trying to ensure that like, if you have a small business and you want to access a customer, good luck if you're trying to compete with Nike to buy a Super Bowl ad. But if you can find the people who really like your thing, you might it, you might be able to pay 10 bucks to show them an ad that drives them to purchase your bespoke pair of shoes or a ramp to help your dog get on the couch. But you can never find that without the personalized advertising that exists when you can sort of find customers at an identity level. I think Facebook is the best example of this. But um, so I think that there's like a lot of changes happening. And I think it's a really interesting time to be in the independent ad tech world. And so when this opportunity showed up at Pubmatic, 
when I looked at what Pubmatic is, and Pubmatic is sort of a, it's an independent ad tech company. We own our own infrastructure. So we like, we are, in, we are in control of our own destiny. We own our own data centers. The company has no debt. It was like an opportunity to be like, Hey, if this world is going to change, and I believe in the next 12 to 36 months, it's going to like, is there an opportunity to really help try and define that? Is there an opportunity to think about how we can build advertising in a better way that doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater? but can respond to sort of the shifts and what people expect from a privacy standpoint, what users need to have confidence to be able to work with publishers. And Pomatic has an opportunity, I think, to really lead in that respect. So that was a big part of why I came here and why I'm really excited about sort of what's going on. I've only been here five months, so it's still real, relatively new. You know, I, I don't want to overstate this point, but I'm old enough to remember sort of when the rise of the big box stores happened. And I'm old enough to remember sort of what happened when the Home Depots and the Walmarts and to a lesser degree, the Barnes and Nobles showed up in Fresno where I was growing up in like the way local hardware stores and local grocery stores and local retailers and local bookstores were just destroyed because they couldn't compete with the advertising budgets. They couldn't compete with the, the price and the margins of the scale of the largest providers. And it was really hard in a world where you're trying to like advertise by putting up flyers in your local pizza joint and Home Depot's running commercials on the Super Bowl and like reaching every customer in town with, you know, in their omnichannel approach to advertising. And then like, if you're trying, and then Facebook changed the game, right? Personalized advertising changed that game because now there's a company, I, I have a solo stove, right? A solo stove is a smokeless fire pit that is targeted to certain customers. I saw it on Instagram and converted there and bought it. It's delightful. I love it. Really happy to hear that. It's it. (laughs) It's a super like niche thing. It's an expensive fire pit, but like my family spends a lot of time in the backyard. We get good use out of it. We like it. Right. But like, that's a company that sells a very niche product and it only appeals to a certain number of customers. And And you're one of them. Yeah, I'm one of them. Right. And if it wasn't for, a company like Meta's ability to find customers from, they simply wouldn't exist. They would be trying to sell into Home Depot or into Costco or into Target or something, hoping that one of these gatekeeping retailers would let them have a shot. And if you're a small company and you're trying to start a business to pull your family up out of you know whatever your circumstances are, or you're trying to do something like that, you'll never get there because you'll never even have the scale unless you're able to get a loan from a bank and we all know about what that does to communities. <laughs> yeah. to even if even if Home Depot wanted to take a chance at you, they'd say, "Great, I need you know 17 million units this year," and you'd be like, "Oh, I'm building them in my backyard," and you're like, "Okay, well then we can't do business with you." And so, like, I, the man, way- I, I completely agree with you. I, I I think like, and what's interesting to me again, like, not to pick on the EU, but I'm going to like the EU. In some of the EU countries, there are some of the highest unemployment rates by young people, educated, well-trained young people in the like industrialized world, right? Like if you look at, I was born in Spain. If you look at Spain, like they have really high youth unemployment rates. You can trend, you can transition those people into entrepreneurs, right? If you give them avenues to be entrepreneurial, right? And like this is one of the best ones, which is you don't have to have a billion dollar marketing budget to launch your widget or your craft or whatever thing you're interested in. If you take advantage of these platforms that provide you like access to the customers that are going to buy the things that you're making. And so like, 
I understand and appreciate the privacy arguments, and I really do. But I think, as I always say, privacy doesn't exist in a vacuum. We have to think about the trade-offs. If we go gung-ho in one way, how it affects other parts of people's lives that in many cases may be as important or more important depending on their situation. And I would argue that I'd rather have, well, I'll stop there. I love this conversation, but we're 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 heavy, and we're we could go ninety minutes if we need to. But I think we have to, we have to call it. <laughs> so fine. Uh, Congratulations to LeBron James, who yesterday uh, became yeah. the all-time NBA scoring leader. I was really impressed. I, was, I stayed uh, up there. That's why I'm cranky. I was disappointed. I wanted it to be a sky hook for that last shot. I wanted. Uh, I think he was thinking about it, man. I think he was thinking about it. But uh, it was. I think a fadeaway jumper I, is his his move. Yeah. yeah, but you want to talk about like good guys, unblemished, you know, like never been in trouble, never, you know, just a. Remember, Charles Barkley said, "I'm not a role model." Well, man, listen, I think LeBron James is a uh, is a pretty strong one. Good for him. I'm happy. Do, for uh, him. Yeah, good we want to end this podcast with a note of controversy. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, we should all agree, right, that LeBron is dramatically better than Michael Jordan in every possible. We're gonna respect, have to stop right? right here. We're gonna have to shut Ooh. it down. Right now. I just want to get down there. <laughs> At every age of his career, pair apples to apples, you could just say that like this guy's better. So I'm glad that we we all agree on that. He's good. He's not as good as as, uh, he's not as good as. uh, But Kyrie Irving is better than both of them. Oh, oh my God! Okay, I'm leaving. I'm quitting the podcast now. All right, all right. Thanks for thanks for coming, man. Appreciate it.